Hey everyone, this is Nathaniel, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. We're going to jump into our episode on evidence for intelligent design here in a moment. But before we do, we wanted to share some breaking news with you. We are giving away a whole stack of books. That's right. We got a whole bunch of books we want to give away, and we want you to have a chance to enter to win those. So if you want to enter to win, head over to our website, cfc.sebts.edu. Again, cfc.sebts.edu, and you'll have a chance to enter to win this entire stack of books. The contest will end on December 19th, so head on over to enter to win. Okay, that's all. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's conversation. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Dr. Benjamin Quinn. In today's Christ and Culture conversation, we're going to talk to Dr. Brian Miller about increasing scientific evidence of design in creation. You won't want to miss that. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment in the news. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments last week about a case with major implications for Roe versus Wade. Dr. Keithley, we've talked about why we should be pro-life before on this podcast, but what are some ways we can pray for the pro-life cause? Yes, um, the case in question is not the Texas case, but rather the Mississippi case. And the Mississippi case, most observers say that it's very clear that the, the court is going to rule in such a way that it will have a major impact on uh, Roe v. Wade. What we need to pay attention to is who it is that ends up writing the majority opinion. Uh, most people agree that if it's Chief Justice Roberts who writes the opinion, then the result will be that Roe v. Wade is dismantled piece by piece, which is a good thing. However, if it is Justice Thomas who writes the opinion, it will be more than dismantled, it will be overturned, which would be even better. How can we pray for the cause of life? Let's remember that if Roe v. Wade is overthrown, this does not mean that suddenly abortion will be illegal in the United States. What it will mean is is that the issue will be thrown back to the states and local governments. And so this means that the controversy will go on, the discussion and conflict will continue, and so we need to pray uh, that we as Bible-believing Christians who care about these kinds of issues, that we will conduct ourselves in such a way in that we will be wise and effective Mm. And always at the very same time, manifesting grace towards those who have been impacted in such a negative way by the abortion industry over the last uh, number of decades. We need to pray uh, that we will have the right approach in dealing with these things. Uh, There's so many things to deal with now. There are now chemical abortions that can be done at home that does not require uh, going to a clinic. Those kinds of things will still be ongoing, and how do we address those? How we then move from pro-life to whole life. That is not just caring about the fetus in the womb, but about the orphan, the single mom, 
those with special needs and the elderly. From beginning to end, we need to have a culture of life that manifests itself in love. Indeed, it's so important to pray for those at the state and local government levels who will have to carry out or even make further decisions on how this uh, this new rendering uh, will be implemented state by state, as well as for our churches and even those who are employed in areas where, for example, safe haven laws might become even more popular and even more utilized. And as a result of that, people who are in locations where they might receive more babies on their doorsteps, how Christians and churches in particular can be places of safe conversation, a place of love and empathy. One thing that really stood out to me, it's uh, part of these oral arguments, was that one in every four women uh, will undergo an abortion or have in the past. One out of every four. I haven't heard the the statistic ki- quite that stark in the past, but one of the people giving some of the oral argumentation in favor of abortion made this 25% of all women, one in every four that we pass, um, have felt the need to give up the life of their baby for whatever reason. And I hope that we as Christians, and especially in our churches, can be a place, a safe place for conversations, a safe place to hopefully point them towards life and hope, especially in Christ. One last thing before we talk to Dr. Miller, do us a huge favor by going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, rate our podcast, and give us a brief review. That small step goes a long way in helping us spread the word about Christ and culture. What if I were to tell you that living organisms were engineered to adapt to different environments? And what if I were to tell you that the latest science actually supports this assumption? So today, we're honored to have with us Dr. Brian Miller to share about recent research into natural genetic engineering and what that term means. Dr. Brian Miller is research coordinator for the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Physics with a minor in Engineering from MIT and a PhD in Physics from Duke University. He speaks internationally on the topics of intelligent design and the impact of worldviews on society. Dr. Miller, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Your article uh, got my attention. Uh, The name of the article is Nearly All of Evolution is Best Explained by engineering. And that's a, that's a provocative title just by itself. For our listeners, I suspect whenever they hear the word evolution, they automatically think of Darwin and Darwinism. Uh, what is Darwinism? And how did Darwin's name come to be so centrally associated with evolution? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, What happened was before the time of Darwin, uh, most people believe that species were fairly static. They simply remained the same over time. And then what happened is as uh, people started to look at the fossil record, as people started to um, examine things like crossbreeding, there's this recognition that there may be more transformations taking place. And an early person before Darwin was like Lamarck, who's a classic example, and Cuvier. And what happened, though, is uh, Darwin, what he did is he came up with um, a model for dramatic species transformations that was very scientific. So what he did is he looked at crossbreeding, and he noticed how, let's say, a person who herds sheep can crossbreed sheep to make them have the wool thicker or thinner. 
And uh, that would benefit, obviously, the, the sheep herder. Well, he imagined that maybe nature could do the same thing. So if it's a colder winter, what happens is the sheep with thicker wool survive, the ones with thinner wool don't survive. And over time, sheep will have thicker and thicker wools over time. So that was sort of, um, he and also other people uh, at the time recognized that that was really a significant change in thinking of biology, that we're thinking not of organisms as static, but they actually change over time. And he came up with a mechanism to explain that. And of course, he didn't simply explain the small scale changes, but he talked about how if you look at all of life, there's all these similarities. And he imagined that you could fit all these similarities into a tree structure, which was the tree of life, the evolutionary tree of life. And then that could explain all of life. And you have basically some uh, cell that started long ago and that changed over time. And you have these different branches in the tree that would be like animals and plants and fungi. And those branches would have sub-branches and so forth until you see all of life today. So his understanding of evolution really is at the heart of how we understand evolution today. So that's why he really is a central figure in this conversation. So he argued that natural selection was able to produce or to select change. One thing he didn't seem to have was a mechanism that produced the change and a way biologically that could retain that change. Uh, so what was the development in, in evolutionary theory that caused biologists to stop talking about Darwinism and start talking about neo-Darwinism. What's the difference? Yeah, and what happens, it's actually a fascinating story because Darwin, near the end of his career, actually adopted a lot of the ideas of heredity and uh, adaptation from the ancient Greeks. Like if you look at Hippocrates, they had this idea of evolution uh, with, with um, what is what Darwin called pangenesis. And the basic idea is that you have um, organisms that through their life experience, will shed certain gemules from their cells. And then those would go into the gametes and then that would be passed on to the next generation. So Darwin at the end of his life was actually very Lamarckian, which is really something most people don't know. But what really made the difference was when people uh, developed the ideas of genetics. So what happens is with genetics, people said, well, we can actually understand heredity in, in, a, in a very specific way that we have uh, DNA chromosomes. And in these chromosomes, you have genes and those genes are passed on from one generation to the, to the next generation. And of course, then there is the idea of mutations. That what can happen is over time, these different genes can mutate, they can change, and that allows for greater variation. And that greater variation then can be selected for through natural selection, and organisms can adapt. And then the, the real triumph of evolution was population genetics. Because with population genetics, what happened is you, you had a very rigorous mathematical formalism to talk about how the uh, different frequencies of different versions of genes can change with time. So that really is, is what's called neo-Darwinism, is when you have Darwin's basic idea that natural selection can cause a population to change over time as certain features are more advantageous than others, and then you add on to that genetics, you add on to that population genetics, and that's what's called neo-Darwinism. And that's sort of the most popular version of evolution that we have today. So it is interesting that um, so many practicing biologists seem to have moved away from the view that natural selection is capable of describing all that we see. Um, what's bringing about this change? What's going on? Yeah, and it's really helpful to recognize that your average biologist is going to be working in a lab. They're going to be looking at some enzyme 
they'll be looking at some genetic pathways. So they're not necessarily thinking very deeply about how this all came about by evolution. So many biologists simply accept the uh, classic neo-Darwinian story. Yet what's happening among more of your upper echelon theorists, people like James Shapiro, whom we'll talk about, people like uh, Wegener, people that uh, have really started to think about the the foundational principles of evolution is they're realizing that neo-Darwinism or this idea of natural selection is really incapable of creating large-scale changes. And it, it, it kind of makes sense because if you look from an engineering perspective, if you have a car, you can make small changes to the car to make the car work better. You can move the seat forward. You can move the seat back. You can tighten the hose. And, and all you're doing is you're optimizing the details of a car. It's the exact same thing in nature. That if you have a finch with a beak, that beak could be thicker or thinner or sharper. And you see over time that the beak the average beak size will change. The average thickness will change depending upon the environment. But that's simply improving an existing design. That doesn't explain how you get something entirely new. So at the 2016 Royal Society meeting uh, on new trends in evolutionary biology, a lot of top-level thinkers came together to think about how you can come up with what's called an extended synthesis. Like how can you add new ideas to evolution to explain things like these radical transformations in the fossil record that happen almost instantaneously if you look at the fossil record. How do you explain uh, new body plans coming into existence? Like how do you go from a fish to an amphibian, which is very, very different? How do you explain the fact that the genetic variation of the different types of genes in any species is very limited? Like you'll see a variation in dogs for hair color, for size, but dogs are all dogs. So he basically said that the neo-Darwinian framework, natural selection, a genetic drift, things like that, cannot explain the, the bulk of what happens in evolution. So they are looking for other alternatives to expand their toolkit to explain radical transformations. So you mentioned James Shapiro, and you, meant, you said the word engineering, which is in your article. You talk about um, uh, natural uh, genetic engineering. So the developments going on today is in the area of engineering-based models. What are engineering-based models? Oh, sure. And I'll, I'll differentiate uh, what's happening because in sort of the mainstream biological community, there has been a revolution taking place in what's called systems biology. And in systems biology, what's taking place is you have like systems engineers working with biologists to understand life. And in doing so, what they've done is they've essentially um, abandoned evolutionary assumptions and replaced them with engineering-based assumptions, language, and tools. So if you look at the standard evolutionary framework, people assumed there would be lots of suboptimal design, non-functional structures, uh, vestigial organs. They assumed that life would not be all that similar to human engineering because it took place through a very random process versus top-down design. And uh, they also um, basically assumed that you can't assume teleology. You can't assume design because it's not designed. So if you look at it like it's designed, that'll probably lead you in the, in, the, in the wrong direction. But what's happened is engineers started to look at life. They realized that we see the same engineering principles in biology uh, that we do in human engineering. Um, they recognized as, as they started to do more research that life looks very optimally designed. 
In fact, uh, there's research like at Princeton where they're, they're arguing, the lead researchers are arguing that, that many systems in life are near the absolute maximum efficiency that's possible based on the physics and, and the chemistry. Uh, they're also realizing that you have to assume life is designed in order to understand it. Now, philosophically, they wouldn't believe it was designed, but they say, and they'll even say this, we have to apply design theory, we have to apply design explanations to really understand life. So when you look at life, you see things like uh, negative feedback loops, control systems, four-bar designs. So again, they're realizing to understand life, you apply engineering principles to, to grasp it. Now, in, in my circles, uh, people that would embrace what's called intelligent design, people that believe it really is design, we're helping, we're, we're kind of standing beside them and helping them to move forward. But because we fully believe in design, we're able to uh, expand that analysis to more explicitly bring in design-based principles. As I hear what you're saying, where they're saying that it looks designed, uh, we have to treat it as if it's designed. We find that we make, make more progress when we deal with it as something that's designed. I hear the duck analogy. If yeah. it walks like yeah. a duck, quacks like a duck, and has webbed feet as a duck, and it's designed like a duck, then it may be designed. I mean, that's what I, that's what I'm hear you saying. Is that, is that something like what's going on? Uh, that's exactly what's going on. Uh, in fact, it, it's really interesting because you can read even people like Richard Dawkins, who is sort of a patron saint of atheism, who wrote the book, The Blind Watchmaker, is they'll say, we look at life and it really looks designed. You see all these, uh, these different components that were carefully crafted to fit together and arranged for a higher goal. So yeah, they realize it's designed and that's why, uh, also, Darwin was so significant because what he did was he actually supplied a designer substitute. So he said that natural selection has the creative power to act like an engineer. Natural selection is almost like a demigod that can construct the most amazing engineering contraptions. And that's how they dealt with it. But now that top level theorists know that natural selection has no such creative power, it, it's more of a critic than a creator. They're, they're, they're living with a sort of cognitive dissonance that they can't really get around. And you read a lot of these articles, and, and I mentioned them some on the articles I've written, is how they're talking about how we have to apply design theory to life. And then they say, but we have to deal with this fact that it looks designed, but we don't believe it's designed. And the way they've solved that is by uh, invoking uh, words and language. Like they'll just simply say we've got teleomeric design or something like that. And they say that sort of explains how you have design without a designer. They'll just invoke a word, and that's about all they do. So, so it's explaining away a problem by stipulated definition is what I hear you saying. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So, so what do what do you mean in the article? You use an expression, phenotypic plasticity. That's a mouthful. So, break that down for us as lay people. What does that mean? Sure. And this is really significant for where evolution is headed. Because when you talk about a organism, you can talk about its basic structure, its architecture. Humans have limbs. We've got hands with certain amounts of bones that interconnect in certain ways. We've got a heart. When you talk about basically the visible architecture or visible design of an organism, that's called its phenotype. So the phenotype is what you see. It's, it's the anatomy, it's the physiology, it's basically what, what's there that you can study. That's 
what phenotype means. So when you hear the term phenotypic plasticity, what that means is that organisms can change their architecture. They can change their anatomy. They can change their physiology in response to environmental stimuli. And, and, and that's really, really significant because uh, a lot of uh, observations of variation in species, like classic examples would be the cichlid fish in Africa or stickleback fish, is that biologists saw that there seemed to be very dramatic adaptation taking place. So you have a cichlid that goes into a lake, and then after 10 million years, several million years, you end up with multiple species of cichlids, which look very, very different. They have different body shapes. They have maybe different numbers of spikes on their body. And people said, what amazing evidence for the power of natural selection and mutations. But what's becoming more clear is that's not from genetic diversity entirely. What you find is that these fish have an ability to sense the environment, and then they've got special processes where they send signals from the sensors to these logical analyzers. And they say, and they recognize if a certain environmental condition exists, like low salinity or high salinity, then it can direct the um, developing embryo to develop into a, into a different looking fish. So if you put fish in, in, um, in, let's say, higher salinity or lower salinity environments, or you put a predator or you have other environmental differences like temperature, then the fish look very, very different. And that's not from just random mutations. That's from the ability of the fish to adapt to the environment through internal mechanisms. That's really, really striking. So like I said, I'm speaking as a layperson. You correct me if, if I am misunderstanding you. Uh, but what I hear you say is that, yes, there is a great deal of adaptation going on. And yes, we could even say, use the word uh, evolution, that it has evolved. However, what we need to recognize is, is that this is not evidence of accidental and random things happening, but rather it is evidence of something that is, has been engineered in an amazing way so that whatever the environment uh, it encounters within within limits, of course. It's designed to change. It's designed to adapt. And so what we have is, and I guess that's where the, the whole expression natural genetic engineering comes from. And this is a remarkable thing. Am I hearing you right? You are hearing me exactly right. And, and I think this is um, a really another going back to Darwin, which was so significant is before Darwin, uh, people recognized that uh, organisms adapt, but they believed that they adapted to their environment because of systems des designed in those organisms. So it's internal adaptation. It's internal ability to adapt. Like an obvious example, if it gets hotter, we sweat. And we sweat because we've got sensors for temperature. If it gets too hot in our body, we have mechanisms, we have logical analyzers that say, hey, uh, the temperature is too, too high. We send a signal to our body to sweat. And it's internal. But what Darwin did is he replaced internal adaptation with external uh, natural selection. So now what's happening is you have the environment that's shaping and molding this organism like passive clay. And a person who's written a lot about that is Randy Galuza. He's, he's a person with an MD from Harvard and an engineering degree. And, and that was a really striking change. And what's happening is this, these new studies are showing that it's not external. It's not random mutations. It's not the environment running the show, but it's the organism designed to adapt in remarkable ways 
uh, either in fish or birds or even bacteria. What I hear you saying is something that fits very well with a faith position that we were created, uh, designed by someone who really knows what they're doing, an omniscient, uh, an infinite mind. Uh, if, if, if that's what I hear you saying. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I would, I would even go further than, than that, um, because I, you may, I'm sure you're familiar with the paper, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Physical Sciences. And this paper talks about how our universe is really surprising in that mathematics works so well to understand uh, nature. I mean, why should we understand quantum mechanics with a simple equation? That's really surprising. And of course, that points to the idea of a creator that designed our universe according to orderly laws and gave us the ability to understand it. That makes perfect sense in a Christian narrative. But also, uh, you could argue that God designed the universe in such a way that engineering principles work. So what we find is that the same engineering principles used in human engineering are the same principles used in life. And this is where uh, things are very different from the evolutionary framework, uh, the, like the neo-Darwinian framework, because what you see in every population of every organism is that organisms are based on a design logic. They're based on a blueprint according to engineering principles. And in that blueprint, in that design logic, certain things are fixed. When you look at a finch, a finch will always be a finch. It'll have feathers and wings, a certain bone structure and a beak. But the design was deliberately conceived to allow for adjustable parameters. So a finch beak can be larger or smaller or thicker or sharper, and it's designed in such a way that those features can vary with time to meet the current environmental conditions. In a sense, an organism can fine-tune its design for the specific environmental situations, but the overarching design logic never changes. So when you look in the fossil record, what do you see? Anytime a new design pattern appears, it appears suddenly without ancestors going back to the trunk of a tree, and then it never changes in its tenure on Earth. When you look at numerous studies, and, and a lot of this research is very recent, like in the last 20 years and some in the last five years, what people are doing is looking in great depth at the genetic and phenotypic body plan diversity in organisms. And what they find is that the basic architecture never changes but there's these parameters that can change to help the organism adapt to its situation. And what they find is both the genetic variation and the phenotypic or the anatomical variation repeats itself over and over and over. So you might have cichlids or sticklebacks that go to different lakes or different environments. And what you see is the same variation appears repeatedly and it's always constrained. Uh, one of my favorite examples, is there is um, a, a beautiful paper that came out recently on fly wings. And what, they, what the researchers did was they looked at the variation of fly wings and they found, and they state this, that there's developmental constraints for how much this fly can change. And what they're able to do is show that all of the variation could be mapped in a single variable, like a single knob you can tune back and forth where the veins would cross in different places or the hinge would be slightly rearranged. So the organism can beautifully uh, optimize itself for a given situation, but it's always fixed, which again points to the mind of a creator. So Dr. Miller, you've mentioned natural genetic engineering. What exactly is it then? 
Right. So what I talked about initially was phenotypic plasticity, where there is no, it's not, it, it, there's no difference in the genes between different organisms. It's simply that an organism has the internal ability to alter its appearance, uh, like cichlid fishes or stickleback fish. But you also have some genetic variation. But as it turns out, a lot of that genetic variation isn't random mutations. But what you have is what's called natural genetic engineering. And we talked about James Shapiro, who's really been one of the major researchers for this. And what happens is organisms have very complex systems to target genetic changes. So it's not, it's not entirely random. There might be regions of the DNA where there's what are called genetic hotspots, where you see a much, much higher mutation rate than any place else, because that's where the genetic variation is most useful. Or you have what are called transposable elements. So what happens is, let's say you have maize, which is a plant, and it senses that it's in a soil with lots of aluminum, or it senses there's some environmental stress. What happens is there's mechanisms that'll trigger the DNA. So an element of DNA will jump from one section to another section of DNA. And then what it'll do is it'll help regulate a gene in a certain way to help it deal with drought or with a different soil. So what we're finding is a lot of the genetic variation is not random, but there's mechanisms that target specific genetic changes in specific regions. So what we find is that virtually every aspect of evolution or adaptation is engineered to achieve specific goals. Now, there are a few examples where you do see, you know, a random mutation that will um, change a gene in some slight way or uh, will alter, let's say, the, how a gene gets activated. But uh, Mike Behe in his book, Darwin Duvall's, talks about and how almost all of those examples you're degrading the gene or giving trivial modifications. Like in a cichlid fish, you might have a, a, a gene that deals with um, vision that may have one amino acid change that goes back and forth. So again, what you find is that evolutionary processes, adaptive processes are real. Most of it's engineered. And the small amount that's just kind of by chance represents trivial modifications that could never lead to large-scale transformations. And that's really significant. So if I hear you right, if we were to come across uh, some device that has some amazing software that depending on the environment that it finds itself in, it's, it has the capacity to change its software and rewrite its program so that it is able to adapt to that environment uh, and then still thrive no matter what the environment is. We would immediately think that that was the work of genius and not something that happened by accident. You're, you're absolutely right. In fact, what's interesting, if you talk to a lot of the proponents of natural genetic engineering and you talk, you ask them, how did this amazing program come into existence? They, they become very uncomfortable and they often will say, I don't think about that question. I just think about how this program is helping adaptation. And what's so amazing is it's an irreducibly complex system because you've got to have a sensor that senses the environment You've got to have a logical analysis process that determines how to deal with that information from the sensor. Then it has to have the mechanism that actually makes the targeted genetic changes. So again, you're absolutely right. You're seeing a, a mind behind every detail. Dr. Miller, this has been a fascinating conversation. Where can our listeners find more resources about this? Yeah, certainly. You could go to uh, discovery.org at the Discovery Institute and then go to the section on intelligent design or the Center for Science and Culture. And there's a lot of resources there. 
And I talk a lot about what we've talked about today in my articles on Evolution News. So if you go to evolutionnews.org, you look at my name, Brian Miller, then the last several articles I've done for the last few months go into a lot more detail and will give you the references to the primary literature so you can convince yourself that what I'm saying is true. We've been talking to Dr. Brian Miller. He's research coordinator for the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute. Thank you so much, Dr. Miller, for being with us today. Uh, Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Now it's time for another edition of On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where we tell you what books we are reading right now. So, Dr. Quinn, what's on your bookshelf? In 2019, Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, who's one of our faculty here at uh, Southeastern, and also Dr. Joshua Shatro, who's one of our graduates, he did his PhD here with us at Southeastern, published a book called Cultural Engagement, a crash course in contemporary issues. Again, that's called Cultural Engagement, a crash course in contemporary issues. And Dr. Keithley, I haven't taught Intro to Theology and Culture in a couple of years, but I can't wait to teach it again so I can assign this book. Chatro and Pryor, they put this book together. It's, it, I want to recommend it as much as a resource as anything else. So it's, uh, it's, it's put together much like a textbook. It's not just to be sat down and read left to right in one sitting or anything like that. It's much more of a the first part of the book giving a framework and definition for cultural from a biblical perspective, and then also providing some historical overview of that. And then going through specific issues. It's, it's written almost like an ethics textbook, except with this proper nuance of how do we think about Christian cultural engagement in this particular section of culture. So it talks about sexuality and gender issues. It talks about human life and reproductive technology. It talks about work and the arts, war and weapons and capital punishment, creation and creature care, not just creation care, but even creature care. As a hunter, I'm keen on this chapter. I'm really interested in this. Um, But it's also one that's, it's an edited work. So Chateau and Pryor are overseeing the book, and they're the ones providing the, the sort of front and back matter. But throughout, there are a variety of different people writing. Uh, ben Witherington, Bruce Ashford, Taylor Worley, even Andy Crouch writes uh, near the end on creating culture and what it looks like to do that. So as we are the Christ and Culture podcast, I thought this book in particular is one that I just got a copy of it a few months ago and have really enjoyed working through it uh, and look forward to assigning it in future courses. I-, I wanted to give in one place in page 23 and 24, they give a few definitions of culture. But then they boil it down to just say, notice these commonalities in the definitions of culture that they used. And the three common themes that they highlight are, first, that culture is comprised of more than simply beliefs or worldviews. The second is that culture is complicated. It's complex. It's, It's not as simple as what you eat, what you listen to, how you celebrate weddings. It's all of these things and a whole lot more. And thirdly, that culture is communal. And each of these themes uh, find a whole lot of fodder 
in how the biblical story is put together and how we as creatures in God's world are expected to live and to promote and advance his kingdom in his world. So I highly recommend this book uh, for thinking not only about culture in general, but specific cultural issues, cultural engagement, a crash course in contemporary issues by Joshua Chatreau and Karen Swallow Pryor. Thank you, Dr. Quinn. That is uh, indeed a very good recommendation. And thank you all for listening today. If you enjoy the podcast, take 30 seconds. Go to Apple Podcast and give us a rating and a review. That small step goes a long way to helping us spread the word about Christ and culture. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.